Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are David Crow, our banking editor, and Stephen Morris, our European banking correspondent. Joining us down the line from New York are Rob Armstrong, our US finance editor, and Laura Noonan, our US banking editor. This week, we'll be discussing the latest advances in US cards, also a look at Barclays as its activist investor steps up his campaign, and finally, some predictions for 2019, first from our guest, Ronit Ghost, who's the lead banks analyst at Citigroup, and also from our editors in London and New York. First, though, to that story about cards. And Rob, you wrote a very interesting piece in the last couple of days about how contactless cards are starting to take a hold in the US. What's making the US finally catch up with Europe and the rest of the world on this? Well, it's interesting that such a large and wealthy market as the U.S. should be so late to contactless cards, but it has to do with the very size and complexity of the market. So with any payment solution, the trick is getting everybody to agree. If a payments technology is not ubiquitous, it's pretty useless. And in a country with 5,000 banks and a zillion banking regulators and millions of merchants, it was basically hard to coordinate everybody and settle on getting everybody onto the same chip system that makes contactless possible. But we've finally arrived, and contactless should be coming at scale to the United States in 2019. Are we going to see the same advances that we've seen? I mean, the, the real thing in London that made contactless broadly accepted by the population, or certainly a big step, was its acceptance on the London Underground. Are we going to see the New York Metro go down that route as well? I think the New York Metro is promising the rollout to begin this year, and that project seems to be on schedule. But it will start slowly at you know certain stations on the east side or on Staten Island. But the crucial thing here is, as you say, once consumers start using cards for small expenditures like the subway, that's when cards can take a lot of market share from cash. And that's why card issuers like Visa and card issuing banks like Chase, for example, are excited about this. You take those small purchases of a couple of bucks, you flip them to your card rather than cash out of your wallet, and it can mean a lot more money is rolling through the card system. And just briefly, what are the benefits of that other than, obviously, the security side of things? Why are the banks so keen on this? Do they see the promise of a boost in spending? There's anecdotal evidence, certainly. I don't know if we have scientific proof of this, but that contactless cards encourage people to spend more. But there are other reasons, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there is good evidence that when people start using contactless cards, the amount of their spending that goes onto the card goes up. That's very important. But also... It's a inter-card company advantage issue. So once you get in the habit of using one card, say, for the subway 
or for your morning coffee at Starbucks, then that card becomes your default card. So there's something of a competitive race on here to get what they call top of wallet in the industry, to become that default card that you reach for for your everyday purchases. So the companies that have invested earliest in contactless can take share from rivals and become that first card in the wallet that the consumer reaches for. And in a word, who's winning that race so far? It's Chase. So Chase, unlike all the other major card issuing banks, JP Morgan Chase has said that all of their cards in their system are going to be contactless by the end of 2019. And nobody else has made that broad a commitment. So I think they have a chance to take some market share here if others don't catch up fast. Definitely one to watch for the year. Rob, thanks ever so much. Let's move on to our second story and a look at Barclays, where things are getting rather heated between Barclays management and its activist investor, Ed Bramson. David, you wrote about it overnight. Tell us exactly what's happened. So the latest development is that Ed Bramson is pledging to seek investor support to get elected to the board. He already reached out to the board of Barclays and asked if he could become a director, and they said no. And so now he's going over their heads directly to investors, setting the stage for a sort of bitter proxy battle. Stephen, what do you think are the chances of that succeeding? Because there's an interesting mix of shareholders in Barclays, some very big ones. What do you think his chances are? Yeah, well, it's not the traditional, you know, blue chip UK stock investor base at the moment. There are quite a lot of US value funds in there who have bought Barclays precisely because the share price has fallen so much, they're counting on it going back up again. So Bramson may get actually a better hearing, as David reported yesterday, from those type of people to get a seat on the board. But you have to imagine he already knew that Barclays were going to turn down his request to join the board, bearing in mind he wants them to do yet another reverse face. I've lost count of the number of times they've gone in and out of investment banking in the last few decades. He has to have known that he will have been turned down. So this looks more and more like this is bleeding out into public now. He wants this to become a proper fight between him and management. And, you know, certainly from our initial reporting, it looks like some investors may actually be receptive to this to see a refresh of the board. Whether that ends up with Bramson becoming chairman himself is another issue, but I'm sure that's where he'd like to end up. And of course, David, this is all going on while there is a kind of handover of chairmanship from John McFarlane, who's been there for the last few years, to an incoming chairman who is due to join from Rothschild, what, by May, is it? In the spring, yes. Yeah. 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 How do you think he's going to handle this? And what is the process from here as well? Well, you know, it's very interesting because normally when a new chairman comes in and there is support among the investor base for a shakeup of the board, one would expect that job to fall to the chairman, not to an investor with about 5% of the shares. So he may well sort of make it clear that, yes, the board does need to be refreshed, but that as he's the chairman, he'll be the one doing that. This is Nigel Higgins who joins from Rothschild. Nigel Higgins joining from Rothschild. And this is an interesting battle because it's hard to see how both sides can win this, if you like. I mean, either at the end of this, Jess Staley, the chief executive of Barclays, will still be chief executive of Britain's last remaining investment bank. Or Sherborne, or Ed Bramson, his vehicle is called Sherborne, will have forced his way onto the board, perhaps even into an executive position or something like that. And he will have dramatically changed the strategy, in which case I'm pretty sure that Jess Staley will not stick around. So someone is going to lose this one, and it's to be determined who. 
the stakes are high. Thank you for that. Let's now move on to our crystal ball gazing session where I ask David here and then Laura in New York and then finally run it ghost from Citigroup for their predictions as to what's going to happen in the banking sector in 2019. David, you go first. What's your big pick for the year? So we've already spoken about Barclays. I think Standard Charter is going to be a very interesting stock this year. I think that Bill Winters, the chief executive, who's been struggling to implement his turnaround there, has got one last throw of the dice, if you like, a final chance to prove himself. And therefore, you have, you know, the chance of some pretty big changes there. And he's really struggled to get the share price up, really struggled to improve returns. And there are some out there that just think it's an impossible job and he's got to prove them wrong. So I think we'll see a lot coming there. And the throw of the dice will be what? Another restructuring? Well, another restructuring, new management. People really like Bill, Bill Winters, and there's a lot of love for him in the city, to be perfectly honest. But one detects that they think he maybe doesn't have the right team around him. And even if he does, it's not structured in the right way. And that something radical needs to be done, that just running this bank in the current way that it's structured and doing that slightly better is not going to cut the mustard. Very good. We'll watch that one. Let's go over now to Laura. Laura, you take a special interest in the fintech sector as part of your beat, recently having taken over editing the Fintech FT newsletter. What are your top predictions for the fintech sector in 2019? I think in 2019, we're going to see banks in particular being a lot more selective about what they invest in. One of the things that has characterized fintech since people started getting excited about it was that in some institutions, there was an almost limitless budget for fintech because the institutions are so big, they deal in billions and billions of dollars. So spending $10,000 here, $100,000 there wasn't a whole lot to them. And some of them had an almost scattergun approach where they would back every horse in the hope that one horse might somehow turn into the next big thing. I think banks are definitely becoming more selective on that. We had a piece a couple of weeks back about JP Morgan, who in their corporate investment bank, have brought in a new process to streamline tech spending within that to try to get it under control. That kind of goes hand in hand with what we're seeing on a more thematic front. So on the blockchain front, there was a lot of expectation that this was really going to change the world of banking and that every single process in banks could be made better and more efficient just by putting it on the blockchain. The hype around that has now faded. People are a lot cooler in terms of blockchain projects. There's an appreciation that actually blockchain can overcomplicate some things and that not everything needs to be there. So I think we'll see banks stepping back from the brink in terms of blockchain quite a bit. AI is an interesting area because there was a lot of hype there too and a lot of false expectation around what AI could do, particularly on the consumer-facing AI where the idea was you'd have robots filling in for bank tellers and you'd have a really lifelike AI presence. People are certainly a lot cooler on that and some of that has turned out to be quite gimmicky and not really what customers want. Where we're seeing more material progress and where we expect to see more progress on AI is really around the AI that you don't actually see. A lot of the compliance and regulatory work that banks do could be done by AI a lot better. So when it comes to, say, spotting patterns and spotting fraud, AI is actually a lot better at spotting those things than the human eye is. So I think there will be material progress in AI, but unfortunately for us, it's not going to be in the kind of cool, sexy stuff that we like to write about. You had a really interesting piece overnight about the bankers or former bankers who've moved into fintech. Are we going to see that trend slow as well? 
that's a bit of a mixed one. That kind of comes and goes. So there have been some bankers who went into fintech because there was a secular decline in banking jobs. So basically, we had the number of people, banks employed falling and we had fintech hiring more people. I think we've kind of seen the end of that because there aren't the cost-cutting drives on at major banks that we've seen in the last few years. However, generally going forward, there's still a belief that fintech can be a better, more exciting place to be, but the sector is maturing. So the idea a few years back that any fintech just wanted someone who had a bank name that they could put on their CV that would give them a level of cachet, I think people have pretty much wised up to that idea. The idea that everyone in the bank is going to automatically be an asset to your fintech, that it isn't something that really works these days. You will still see people within banking being attracted to fintech because it is certainly a very exciting area. But there is a realisation that it is suitable for certain types of people who have certain skills. And we're already at the stage now where we're seeing a revolving door for fintech where we see people who are in a big bank, go into fintech, think that the grass there is probably greener and then actually come back to a big bank because they are very different places. There's a lot people take for granted when they've been in a big bank for the last 20 years. The idea that if you call up someone and you say you are a managing director of one of these big banks, you automatically get a level of respect. You get in the door. People who've been in senior roles for a long time take for granted having the whole infrastructure of a big bank behind them. When you go to fintech up and you have to do a lot more things yourself, you go from running teams of hundreds to running teams of tens or from running teams of tens of thousands in the case of some of the large CEOs to running much, much smaller teams. People have to mentally adjust when there have been people who have gone out and realised that it actually isn't for them. The final thing is there have been a few years where you could have a much lighter form of regulation if you went to a fintech. I think one of the other big themes we're seeing in fintech in 2019 is that regulators are getting a lot more involved in the area. And the idea now that if you go into a fintech doing a similar business to a bank, you're going to somehow avoid dealing with all of the regulatory burdens. It will be less, but the idea that you will escape regulatory scrutiny doesn't work anymore. Well, Laura, that's a really comprehensive overview. In summary, I guess it means the gloss is coming off fintech just as it's coming off tech more broadly. It's definitely a great one to chart through the year. So we're joined now by Ronit Ghost from City, also speaking to us from New York. Ronit, thanks ever so much for joining us. I think you were on the road there to talk to investors about your predictions for 2019. I suspect you'll be talking to people for several hours at a time. We've only got a few minutes. So what's your top couple of picks for what the bank sector is going to do this year? Sure. If I can mention two or three things for the year ahead for 2019, the first theme is the unraveling of this easy money cycle we've been in. You've seen a decade of global monetary expansion led by the US and QE and Chinese credit creation. That has gone negative in terms of deltas in 2017-18, particularly in 2018, the official sector credit impulse went negative by a trillion dollars. Private sector credit impulse has gone negative by end 2018 because of China slowing in terms of China credit creation. The implication for the bank sector is this has obviously knock-on effects of financial assets. You can see this in the ripples that are going across the bond markets and the credit markets in particular, such as the triple B credit market. And one of the areas we focused in in our year ahead note is the specific impact for Hong Kong. Hong Kong has been a great easy money play. Loan growth in Hong Kong has been very correlated with the growth in money supply. That has now come to a crashing halt. Loan growth is slowing. HSBC has been quite a hiding place. Many fund managers, investors who don't like owning bank shares have hidden HSBC. Under the Stuart Gulliver regime from 2011, they've done a great job in restructuring, but we believe that there's a significant slowdown coming in Hong Kong, and as a result, we're incrementally cautious on HSBC. Another sort of big theme that's playing out is technology. 
Now, this isn't so much about fintechs. It's more about how do banks restructure themselves? How do banks make them future-proof? You know, how do they deal with their core banking systems and upgrade them? there has been a multi-year project to do that. One interesting trend to look out for in 2019 isn't these big bang core banking transformation projects, but more discrete, modular projects. And look at what DNB is going to be doing in 2019 with 11SMS Foundry, taking chunks of their business and upgrading it from a technology perspective. Ultimately, the goal is a lot of the European banks, such as the BBVAs and ING's of the world, have been talking the technology talk, but haven't had the rating or re-rating like DBS got a year ago. So uh, European banks have to work out a way to demonstrate to their stakeholders, to their investors, that they can use technology as a positive rather than just as a negative, rather than just as ongoing cost inflation, which is one of the challenges they have, because tech budgets are obviously increasing, and from 2016 in particular in Europe, have begun to pick up. And if I can have a final throw of the dice, I'd mention almost the sunset in the European investment banking ambitions. I mean, this goes back to the 1980s, 1990s, and the likes of Barclays and Deutsche began to pivot out of their corporate banking strengths into capital markets and traditionally brokerage businesses that used to be boutiques in London or in New York. And that sort of 30, 40-year journey or adventure has come to an end in the last years. Obviously, Barclays again in the news recently under pressure from an activist shareholder. Now, we don't think Barclays should go 180 degrees the opposite way, but these debates have been going on ever since the Martin Taylor days in the 1990s. You know, Anthony Jenkins' regime had a look at this as well. This is also a lose-lose situation for the likes of Barclays and Deutsche. The way to make this work, if you want to have a CIP business that works, is probably to look at the more restrained ambitions of the likes of ING or HSBC. But we're in the next 12 months going to see the ongoing sunset of European investment banking ambitions. Well, you've thoroughly depressed me. I hope not our listeners, but um, it doesn't sound like 2019 is going to be a great year. (laughs) It's going to be a great year, Patrick. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank David and Stephen here in the studio, Laura, Rob, and our guest from Citigroup, Ronit Ghost in New York. And also thank you for listening. If you're not already an FT subscriber, do take a look at our latest subscription offer at ft.com slash offer, and you'll be able to find the FinTech FT newsletter there as well. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 